before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Jesus went up to Peter and said, Peter, and I'm sure Peter blew his mind when he heard this, said, Peter, Satan has desired to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. And then Jesus said, but Peter, I've prayed for you. And when you are restored, then strengthen your brethren. Peter thought, no way. Lord, I'll never deny you. Though everyone else fails, and though everyone else runs out on you, you know me. I'll never fail you. Yes, I do know you, Peter. Better than you know yourself. So much so that I know that you're going to deny me. But Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you. Now, although Peter didn't know what Jesus was talking about, Jesus was going right to the issue of spiritual warfare and the motivation of Satan. To sift, to destroy, to rip off. Even those who belong to God, Satan wants to rip you off. Probably the most common way that Satan rips Christians off is by telling them to reach a certain point in their Christian walk and not go any further. You've got up to this point now, kind of hold back on Bible study, hold back on prayer. Don't grow anymore and don't share the word with anyone. Don't be a fanatic because he doesn't want anyone else affected. So as Christians, we realize as we talked Sunday that we have a battle with the flesh And we also have a battle with the devil, Satan, desiring to sift us. I think Jesus would say the same thing to us, but I've prayed for you. For the Bible says that we have Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding constantly for you and me. And to think that tonight, right now, Jesus Christ is before the throne of God, making intercession for me excites me. Because though everyone else may forget to pray for us, Jesus is praying for us. He's interceding to the Father for us. A few years before I was saved, I met an unusual person who became one of my best friends. Because we were both unusual. (laughs) And he would buy all sorts of books on witchcraft and demonology, spells, all the weird stuff that people get in, get into. Because people find that stuff fascinating. Demons, witchcraft, Ouija boards, mediums, what the future holds. And he would read these things and cast spells upon people. Well, we used to make fun of them all the time. But I noticed a strange thing, that some of those spells worked. And then he would come to school and he would bring a set of cards called tarot cards. You've probably heard of them. He would lay them out in front of people and he would... Tell them their future. The astonishing thing is that he would predict the future oftentimes with great accuracy. This is going to happen to you. This is what's going to happen. And he was involved in all this weird demonic activity. In becoming close to him, I started being influenced by his activities and his interests. And one time we took a a vacation, just he and myself, a few friends, and we went down to Mazatlan, Mexico. We spent two weeks in a hotel by the beach. And this guy started introducing me to witchcraft. But the beautiful thing about it, I'm going to tell you the end before I get to the rest of it, is that he became a Christian. He led me to the Lord later on. 
but uh, Gino was trying to introduce me into witchcraft, and he said it was we were one evening in a hotel room, and he told me about spirit writing, automatic writing. And what we did is we took a flat surface and we prayed to spirits, they were actually demons, we didn't know it, and asked them to come into the room and to take control of our bodies. And we'd ask them to write, and we believed then in reincarnation. And I used to believe that I had lived several generations back in past history and that my spirit, the old dead people, would communicate with me. And uh, so we would pray to these spirits and ask them to come in the room. And I remember many times my hand losing control and would write messages to us. And as these spirits would write messages to us that night, the message that came across loud and clear on both ends was that we were both going to die soon. They said that you wouldn't get to the United States alive. You're going to die. And uh, that caused great fear in both of us. So that evening, I was in bed in Mexico. The wind was blowing through. It's like one of those movies. You know, the wind is blowing through. And <laughs> Nonetheless, the effects were there. And... I was just sitting in bed. I didn't know the Lord. I was just, I was shaking. I was scared to death of the devil. Although I was really speaking to him face to face. I didn't know what I was getting into. And as I was thinking, the fear came over me that I was going to die soon. And I was wondering, how am, how am I going to die? And we rode, if you've ever read Mexican, rode Mexican trains through central Mexico, the odds are 50 50. <laughs> I figured, well, this is it. It's going to be the train. <laughs> and I remember in bed shaking. I was shuddering in bed, thinking I was going to die. And I was thinking I was going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I looked up on the wall and there was this shiny glow up on the wall. Now, I've never been into the ooh kind of stuff. But I looked and I saw this shiny object. And I was thinking, I'm going to die. And, and I looked and it was seemed to be a reflection. I looked in between our bed. Gina was in that bed. I was in this. We were both shivering, shaking wasn't cold, we were scared. And I looked down, and there was a dagger about 14 inches long on the floor, and the moon was hitting. It was just a reflection. But nonetheless, I didn't know where it came from. And I saw this dagger kind of gleaming in the moonlight, and I realized I was completely taken by fear. Well, we didn't die. We lived to tell about it. We got back to the United States. I didn't leave well enough alone, but Gino introduced me into what's called astral projection. Where you go into a trance state and supposedly your soul travels to different parts of the world. And so, you know, we would try to take trips together. And uh, I thank God that he saved me. But I remember one time I was in a class, a photography class, and this, I told this girl about astral projection. I was preaching it practically. And she said, oh, I don't believe that. I said, tell you what I'll do then. I will astral project my soul into your room tonight, and I will describe next week exactly what your room looks like. She said, fine. I went into the trance state that night and uh, supposedly astral projected. And next week I went and I told her exactly what her room looked like and she was astonished. I told her where the dresser was, where the curtains were, what color of bedspread she had, the lamp which was on, and the whole thing in her room. Never even been there. But 
When I became a Christian, I realized how close I had come to Satan. And what I was dealing with was this, the power of demons and the power of Satan. And I believe I came very close to demon possession. I was inviting them. I said, this is great. It was shortly after that that the Lord saved me. But I realized that I was face to face with evil. And that demons, the devil, is real stuff. He really is real. He does work and he makes it look so appealing to people until they get into it too late. In the book of Isaiah, you don't have to turn to it, but in Isaiah chapter 14, there's a scripture that says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? And it speaks about the fall of one called Satan, Lucifer, light bearer. And as it says in Ezekiel, this Satan was the most beautiful of God's created beings. In fact, God said, you seal up the sum of beauty and perfection. But it says, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cast down to the ground, you who did weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. I will sit in the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And then Satan said, I will be like the Most High. And God said, oh yeah? God cast him down. And the Bible says that a third of the angels fell with him. Spiritual conflict. The Bible talks about a literal devil, it talks about literal demons, and it talks about demon possession. Now let me say right off the bat that I don't even like talking about it. I, I hate talking about the devil. I don't like to give him the time of day. But there are times where it's necessary to educate the body of Christ on issues and doctrines that often get out of hand. And one of them is that of demon possession. It's very abused. It's much like the health and wealth gospels that we uh, hear about. Satan is living on borrowed time. He knows that his time is short. He knows the word of God better than most of us. Well, yes, that better than us. He knows he's living on borrowed time. And he knows the book of Revelation. He knows the 20th chapter that says that Satan will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, tormented day and night forever and ever with the beast and the false prophet. So in the meantime, he's trying to deceive people. And he deceives people in a lot of different ways. One of the ways is he tells people that he doesn't exist. He wants people to believe he doesn't exist. He wants people to think that he is just a fable, a myth. And so he's created all sorts of wonderful schemes. So when you tell people about the devil, what do they think of? They think of this skinny little guy with plastic horns and a silk tight suit with a trident pitchfork. They think of him as harmless, just a, a game. We have red devil gum. We have sun devils. Uh, phrases like, uh, the devil made me do it, or uh, speak of the devil. All to get people to believe that Satan is just a myth, that he doesn't exist. So that they'll be taken in by him without, and serving him without even knowing it. And as the scripture says, if you're not serving God, you're serving the devil. If you don't believe in the devil, boy, he's got you good. Because then you'll never change unless God works a miracle. But the Bible says that Satan does exist and that he's a mighty angel, that he's the prince of the power of the air, and that he's the God of this world. The spirit that is now working in the children 
of disobedience, according to Ephesians 2. The other way that Satan loves to deceive people is to have people overestimate the power of Satan and give Satan more credit than he's worth. He wants people to think that he's more powerful than he is. And one of the biggest misconceptions that many Christians have is that Satan is like God or is the opposite of God. Satan is not the opposite of God. I want to make that very clear. If you wanted to have an opposite of Satan, it would be like Gabriel or Michael. As it says in Jude that Michael uh, disputed with Satan over the body of Moses and he said, the Lord rebuke you. Remember that passage? And remember in the Old Testament in Daniel that the angel was going to come, Gabriel was going to come to Daniel with a message, but he said that these demonic forces uh, he was in battle with and so he was delayed a month. If you wanted to have an opposite of, of Satan, it would be one of the created angels. It wouldn't be God. Satan couldn't go one round with the champ, Jesus Christ. Christians have also gone overboard in some circles saying that Christians can be demon-possessed, which I believe is heresy, among other things. And so they have what they call deliverance services. And they say that there's afflicting demons and you have the demon of pride or I felt the spirit of lust or I felt the spirit of nicotine or whatever. And they have deliverance services. And I've seen these guys. I remember a broadcast in California. Uh, he, but he was out of uh, one of the back down south of Carolina or something. And he would always deliver people. And uh, he was called God's man of the hour. That's what he put over his marquee. And he would say, thou deaf and dumb spirit. Uh, come out. And he would tell people that they have the demon of lust or nicotine or strife or envy, and he would cast them out. One time, we here we got a phone call at the church, and a lady called. She was friending. She goes, do you deliver? And I thought... <laughs> I, I thought she was trying to get a pizza hut or something. I said, what do you mean? She says, do you do deliverances? You know, exorcisms? My daughter is a, a afflicting spirits of this and lust and greed and so forth. And um, do you do exorcisms? And I said, well, ma'am, and I explained the scriptures about the works of the flesh and the power that we have over Satan. And I said, I'd love to have her come in and we'll pray, pray with her and talk to her. And I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Maybe I should have said, yes, we do deliverance. Uh, we do exorcisms. We exercise demons. We make them do 50 push-ups. And <laughs> we, do ex we exercise them. Okay. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is writing to Timothy concerning the last days, and he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be diligent, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. By the way, don't be afraid of that word doctrine. The word doctrine means correct teaching. I hear a lot of people say, well, I don't want to talk about doctrine. Why not? 
All the word doctrine means is biblical teaching. If you don't like doctrine, it means you don't like the word of God. That's all it means. Don't be afraid of that. It says in verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts or desires, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables or fictitious stories. And today, living in the period of the last days that Paul was speaking about, I believe we're, it's full of fictitious stories and fables. You remember several years ago the movie The Exorcist? How many saw this? Show of hands. A lot of people saw it. It seems that that was almost an, a, a landmark. And after the movie The Exorcist, it caused a lot of stir and a lot of commotion. And people started getting excited in demonology and witchcraft at an accelerated pace. As the Bible says, one of the marks of the last days would be people involved in doctrines of demons and uh, religious deception. But a lot of people didn't know that the movie The Exorcist was a real movie. It was based on a real documented event, series of events. Except it wasn't with a little girl named Reagan. It was with a little boy up in the northern California, way up northern California area. And demon possession is real. Satan can take control of a person's body, as the scripture says, cause personality changes, cause all sorts of voice changes, all sorts of horrible things to happen with that person. And so I think it would be wise for us to look at scriptural accounts of demon possession before we go any further. So let's turn to the book of Mark and just take a couple instances. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, it says in verse 24, And from there he arose, that's Jesus, and he went to the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hidden. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, meaning she was a Gentile, and she besought him that he would cast forth the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not right to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said, For this saying, go your way, the demon, or the devil, speaking about a demon, is gone out of your daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the demon gone and brought her... Uh, Gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Now, let me just clear up. Jesus wasn't saying that she was a dog. When he was saying it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs, Gentiles were called dogs, but the Greek word Jesus used was little puppies. As little puppies would come underneath the table when the family was eating and the little scraps would fall on the floor and the puppy would eat them. I know that by experience. My puppy eats everything that is left over anywhere. And so Jesus was speaking that it's not right to take the, the food that's on the table and give it to the little puppies, the main course. Speaking of the Jews, that Jesus first came to the Jews and she was a Gentile. Jesus was trying to draw out her faith. But she, she pressed upon me. But, you know, the, the little puppies you know, eat the food, that's the leftovers under the table. I just want some leftovers. And Jesus saw her faith. Jesus was drawing out her faith. He said, go your way. She has been delivered of her demon possession. Now turn to a couple chapters later, chapter 9. 
and in verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway, all the people, when they looked at him, were greatly amazed, running to him, greeting him. And he asked the scribes, what are you asking them about? What are you questioning them about? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto you my son who has a dumb spirit. Now, he wasn't calling the spirit a name. Like, oh, dumb spirit. The, the, saying that she has a dumb spirit. Dumb, he couldn't talk. The, the, uh, causing the person to be dumb. And wherever he takes him, he teareth him, and he foams and gnashes with his teeth and pines away. And I spoke to your disciples and they, that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answered him and he said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I endure with you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed and he fell upon the ground wallowing and foaming. And he asked his father, how long ago is it since this came unto him? And he said, from a child. So he'd been demon possessed, having this happen to him since he was a little child. And often it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, you deaf and dumb spirit. I charge you, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and convulsed him greatly and came out and he was as one dead lying on the ground as if he was dead. Insomuch as many said he's dead. And Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up and arose. And when he came into the house, the disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast him out? And he said to them, this kind uh, can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. So here's a couple cases, biblically, before we get into anything else, of demon possession. We know that it's real. Now the question is, is there demon possession today? I believe that there is. And I want to read to you a couple of different illustrations, uh, both from Christians. First is from a Christian psychiatrist who has researched demonology for some time. And this is what he has said. I can honest, now this is just one man's opinion, keep in mind. I can honestly say that I have never yet seen a single case of true demon possession. The main thing that I have learned about demon possession is how little we really know about it and how little the Bible says about it. I have had hundreds of patients who came to see me because they thought that they were demon possessed. Scores of them heard, quote, demon voices telling them evil things to do. It was at first surprising to me that all of these uh, patients had dopamine deficiencies in their brains which were readily correctable with Thorazine or any other major tranquilizer. I discovered that all of the demons that I was seeing were allergic to Thorazine and that in nearly every case, a week or two on Thorazine made the demons go away and brought the patient closer to his real conflicts. These demons were merely auditory hallucinations. To have self-esteem, these patients were unconsciously amplifying their own unwanted thoughts so loud that they seemed like real voices. They felt less guilty when they could convince themselves that their thoughts were coming from external sources, such as demons, rather than from within themselves. Don't get me wrong, he goes on. I am a strict 
biblicist or believer in the Bible who believes in the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe that demons really do exist because the Bible says they do. I believe that there uh, probably are some demon-possessed persons in various parts of the world. Now I want to read to you what a minister, most of you know Professor Walter Martin, uh, uh, who does a lot of stuff on the cults and researches the occult as well, some of his personal experience with demonology and exorcism. And he says this, in Newport Beach, California, by the way, all the weirdos live there, and Huntington Beach, I encountered a case of demon possession in which five persons, including myself, were involved. In this case, the girl was about five feet, four inches tall and weighed 120 pounds. She attacked a 180-pound man with one arm, flipped him five or six feet away. It took four of us, including her husband, to hold her body to a bed while we prayed in the name of Jesus Christ for the exorcism of the demons within her. During the course of the exorcism, we found that she was possessed because she had worshipped Satan. And because of that worship, he had come with his forces and taken control of her. So they found out that she was consciously worshipping Satan. She was a perfect tear in the wheat field, as Jesus said in Matthew 13. Now, she had married a Christian. She was the daughter of a Christian minister. She taught in Sunday school in a Christian church, and she appeared on the surface to be perfectly consistent with Christian theology, but the whole time she was laughing inwardly at the church and at Jesus Christ. It was not until her exorcism that she was delivered and received Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. Today, she and her husband are on the mission field serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I have a psychologist friend who was present with me at an exorcism in Newport Beach. Before we entered the room, he said, I want you to know that I don't believe in demon possession. This girl is mentally disturbed. And Walter Martin said, that may well be, but let's find out. As we went into the room and closed the door, the child's supernatural strength was soon revealed. Suddenly from her body, a totally foreign voice quietly said with a smirk on her face, we will outlast you. The psychologist looked at me and said, what was that? He said, that is what you don't believe in, I said. <laughs> we spent about three and a half hours exercising what the psychologist didn't believe in. There are documented accounts. There is one particular account down in the Philippines with a girl named Clarissa. It was written up in the Time magazine years ago. This girl, Clarissa, in the Philippine Islands, they would find her with bite marks upon her body in places where she couldn't get to herself. They took this girl named Clarissa and put her in the central prison for protection in Manila, in the Philippines, isolated her, put her in a padded cell, and even in isolation she was attacked and they found bite marks in uncanny parts of her body where she couldn't possibly reach. They called in the best psychologists that they could. They tried to work with her. They couldn't do anything. And there were some American missionaries. Um, Lester Summerall was one of them and another guy. And they went there and they were in the prison and they spent time speaking with her and they prayed over her and they delivered her, the Lord delivered her through them, from the demons. When they prayed over her and the demons came out, she fell on the floor as if she was dead, like the biblical account. When she came to, they warned her. They said, Clarissa, you must accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because the demons will come back, like Jesus said to Matthew, and an unclean spirit leaves. The demons will come back and will want to invade your body again. You must accept Jesus Christ and be filled with His Holy Spirit and they can't touch you. They can't come in. They can't harm you. 
And you have to cry out upon the name of Jesus Christ when they come near. The next day when Clarissa was in the courtyard of the prison in Manila, the demons came back. And she went through these, uh, this, she felt them and she went through this uh, kind of a convulsion where she was uh, knew they were, they were coming and tried to fight, fight them off. And one of the guards saw her running around. They called the missionaries in. And as the demons were trying to invade her again, she called out, Jesus, I belong to Jesus. You can't touch me. My body belongs to him. I've given my life to Jesus. And she kept crying out and calling on the name of Jesus and the demons left. At that time, the missionaries got back. They found that she was in her right mind, but she was shaken up. And they found her fist tightly clenched, just a tight fist. And they peeled her fingers back. And in her fingers, they found this ugly black strands of hair. And they took and tried to have it examined by some scientists. And the scientists couldn't figure out of what nature it was. They still can't. And to this day, those hairs are in the mayor's office in Manila. This made a big stir and it was written up in a Christian magazine and also in Life magazine. They gave uh, uh, a report on it. But Satan is real and there is demon possession. But the thing I want to underline tonight is that Satan is powerful, but Satan has definite limitations. God has set bounds for Satan and Satan cannot go out of those bounds by the protection of God. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Job, chapter 1. That is not the book of Job, that's the book of Job. It's right before the book of Psalms, Job, chapter 1. Before we look at the limitations of Satan in the book of Job. Don't blame every disorder that you see on Satan. Satan gets, people give him the credit for more than he deserves. Oh, that was the devil. Oh, that was the devil. And they see a devil under every bush. Demon, demon, who has the demon? And he does have powers, but he's limited. And every physical disorder or mental disorder is not necessarily the, a demon possession. Um, and I want to share this with you because I might forget later on. Don't sit up tonight or any other night and swap demon stories. I say this because it's often easy as Christians to speak about the spooky, awful things that have happened in our lives. And, and you walk away from those kind of sessions just feeling fearful. That's why we're going to go on to close out to see the protection we have in Jesus Christ. How that it's impossible for us to be demon possessed. But oftentimes people sort of swap their demon stories and their spooky stories. And so you have that on your mind and you walk to bed going, oh, so scary. <laughs> and really that just brings glory to Satan and not God. Sort of like testimonies. You know, I love personal testimonies, but I've often seen them carried to extremes where people glorify the flesh. And they spend a half an hour talking about what a crummy person they were in about a minute saying, oh yeah, I was saved too. I used to be on dope and a drug addict and I killed and I did horrible things and then God saved me. And then the other guy tries to get up and outdo him. Well, let me tell you what I did. And the people go, ooh, wow. I'd rather talk about Jesus Christ than all the garbage that happened 
spend more time at least talking about his deliverance and not be overawed with the power of Satan necessarily. It says in Job chapter 1, verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where are you coming? And Satan said, From going to and fro throughout the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? So God's bragging about Job. That there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Notice what Satan says to him. Have you not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power only upon himself. Put not forth your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And uh, it says that all these things happened to his, uh, his family and himself and so forth. But it says in verse 20, And Job arose and tore his mantle, shaved his head, fell down on the ground, and what? Worshipped. And he said, Well, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'm going to return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with folly. So God set a bound on him. You can do this up to this point. Go no further. So Satan comes again in chapter 2. And it says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where are you coming? And Satan said, From going to and fro throughout the earth and walking up and down in it. Just cruising throughout the earth. And verse 3, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man? One that fears God and shuns evil. And still, he is holding fast his integrity, although you moved me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, but save his life. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord, smote Job, with sore boils from the sole of his feet to his crown. And he took a potsherd with which to scrape himself, and he sat down among the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. Good counsel, huh? But he said to her, You speak as one of... In other words, you're a foolish woman. You speak as one of a foolish woman would speak. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Now in Job's three friends, isn't that an interesting concept? Hey, we receive good, why shouldn't we receive evil? Why should we be God? Let him be God. Now when Job's three friends heard of all the evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own palace. Okay, these are about his three comforters. We don't want to read about them. But there is demonic activity, but God has set hedges and there are limits that God has set. Now, what about Christians? Born again, New Testament People who've been filled with the Spirit in the whole bit. What about Christians? Can a Christian be demon-possessed? No way. <laughs> a lot of the people that talk about Christian demon possession won't use the term. They'll say, well, he's invaded with demons. Well, what's the difference? Or 
They have afflicting demons. Now, let me say this, that I believe that you can be oppressed and tried by Satan, but you cannot be possessed. And there is not a fine line between the two. They're miles apart. There's a big difference between being oppressed and being inhabited and controlled by Satan. But some of them will say this, well, now Satan can't touch your spirit, but he can touch your body and your soul and can invade your body and soul. Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says in verse 19, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have of God, are you not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. The word in Greek for temple is the word naos, which is speaking of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And it's speaking of the inner sanctuary where God's presence was dwelling. And as you know from the Old Testament and the New, that that was a very special place to God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 6. It says in verse 14, to be not unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. And the reason he gives is, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with the devil or Belial? Or what part has he that believeth with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple, the naos, the temple, your body, the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and I will walk in them. I will be their God and they will be my people. To say that your body can be invaded by afflicting spirits or demons is to say that light can have communion with darkness and it's to say that God and Satan can dwell together. I do not believe that if God is living inside of you, He would ever allow another tenant inside. He's not going to lease out half of the apartment to the devil. He's in control. He is living within you. And I believe to say that a Christian can be possessed by a demon is heresy. And I also think it's very, it's close to being blasphemous. In fact, it is blasphemous. To say that the God that you serve, whom you ask into your heart, who is living within you and inhabiting the temple of God, your body, would allow Satan to come in Oh, what a horrible concept then you must have of God. I've heard this in various circles. It's, it's, the stories that people tell are funny. I've heard in some very strict, uh, ultra-fundamental circles, people who don't believe in gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially tongues, they have stories, and this story has been around for probably a hundred years, maybe since the fall, who knows, well, when, since they had the gift. But, uh, and it's been in different forms, but it's all, it all goes like this. The lady was in a church and she stood up and she gave an utterance in a tongue or in a fellowship somewhere. 
and she spoke in a language that was a human language, but she didn't understand it, but someone behind her happened to speak that language and interpreted it in her head, and she, in listening to the lady who was giving the utterance in tongues, heard that the lady was speaking blasphemies against God. I think that's pretty dumb. To say, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit, give me a gift that is from God, when you're calling upon God and trusting in God for God to allow a demon to come inside to cause you to blaspheme God. And they say, yeah, if you open yourself up to the Holy Spirit like that, you get demon-possessed. Does that make sense? You open yourself up to God and you get demon-possessed. I'd like you to turn with me now to the... You're turning a lot tonight to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Let's look at something else. Ephesians chapter 1. Now it says something. Read very carefully. In verse 20, verse 19, it says, What is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, set Him at His own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality, power, and might, Dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. It says that Jesus Christ was raised up above principalities, power, might, and dominion. Those are spiritual beings. In the original language, it's ranks of spiritual beings. Like you'd have private, sergeant, lieutenant, colonel, whatever. Principalities, powers, dominions are often in the scripture terms of spiritual beings. Christ has been raised above all of the spiritual beings. Now turn with me to chapter 2, next chapter. Verse 5, it says, Even when we were dead in sins, He has made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And notice this. He has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is now above all these spiritual beings. And where are we? In Christ Jesus, above all those spiritual beings. Now turn to Colossians, a couple books over. Philippians, Colossians, chapter 2. In chapter 2, Paul is speaking about what Christ has done for us on the cross, speaking about the law and about spiritual authority. In verse 14, he says, And he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, the law, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. He spoiled these spiritual powers. The word spoil means is the word katagaro, to put out of business for good. The power that, that Satan could have over our lives. Once we're a Christian, Satan has no right to us. He put out of business principalities and powers and it says he triumphed over them. Remember what Jesus said before the cross? He said, now is the judgment come and now the prince of the world is going to be judged. Oh, the prince of the world is cast out. Now is the judgment and the prince of this world, Satan, will be cast out. You don't cast him out of people today who are Christians. If you're a Christian, he's been cast out for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now turn with me to the book of First John. The book of First John, chapter 4. If you don't know your Bibles very well by tonight, I think you will. First John chapter 4. 
it says in verse 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you. Who's in you? God, Jesus Christ. Then he who's in the world, who's the prince of this world, Satan. What is inside of you as the temple of the Holy Spirit is greater, more authority, power than he who is in the world. Now turn to chapter 5. And look at verse 18. It says, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, I better explain that before people think, oh no, I'm not born of God. The word in Greek is a present perfect, a continual, uh, it's saying, he who is born of God does not continually on a habitual lifestyle practice, practice sin. We all slip, we all blow it, but you don't practice blatant, constant, continual sin. If you do, I want to talk to you. We know that whoever is born of God does not habitually, continually practice a lifestyle of sin, but he that is begotten of God keeps himself, and that wicked one touches him not. The word touch is to have a firm grasp, not to touch, because Satan touched Job, but will not have a firm, controlling grasp over him. Who is born of God? Us. And it says that Satan cannot have that firm, controlling touch or grip over our lives. Now, we need to respect the power of evil, as the Bible says, but not to fear it to the extent that we would uh, believe that he could invade or indwell a child of God or could control him or that he would make you do things you don't want to do. You, as a Christian, can never say, the devil made me do it. Baloney. There is no temptation taken you about what is common to man, but God is faithful and won't allow you to be tempted above what you're able to endure. And with that, we'll give you a way of escape. You can never say, I never had enough strength. You're saying, in, in essence, God failed because God promised he would give you the strength. So God promised victory over those areas of life of the flesh. Now, the next question is, what about all the experiences then that people have concerning afflicting demons or demon possession? What about the experience of the loud shrills that Christians experience or the feelings that come over them or the falling on the floor or in some Christian circles, the vomiting, the throwing up. If you're not aware, there are Christian circles where they have deliverance services that people barf up their demons. That's serious. What about all those experiences? How do you explain them? I don't explain them and I don't need to explain them because I don't do them. I don't need to explain anything that's unscriptural or that I don't practice. What I practice, I must prove scripturally. And let me say that if you stick to the Word of God, you'll be saved. Peter, on Pentecost, they said, what is this? After they all had spoken in tongues. Are they filled with new wine? What is this? Peter said, this is that, which was spoken of by the prophets. Here it is in the Bible. It was spoken of by the prophets who said in the last days, I will pour out my Holy Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy and on and on. He said, I'll tell you what it is. It's in the word. And the word must always be your authority, not the uh, experiences that a person might have. The demon names that people give them, like the, the more popular demons, like lust, greed, envy, fear. And I've heard people say, well, I, I sensed a spirit of lust in the room. Or I sensed a spirit, the demon of strife around that person. And envy and murder. I find those things named in the Bible in Galatians chapter 5. So last scripture I'll have you turn to is Galatians Chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. 
verse 16, says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh wars against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and they are contrary to one another, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, notice they are not called demons, they are called works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, wrath, factions, seditions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelings, and the like, of which I tell you before, as I have told you in times past, they who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul doesn't say that these are demons. These are called works of the flesh. And as we read in Colossians, this last Sunday, are we to cast them out? No, we're to put them off, crucify the flesh. And oftentimes, people use this doctrine as a cop-out for their own flesh. Instead of crucifying the flesh, which the Bible says to do, putting off the old man, they say, oh, I'll just go somewhere and get it exercised. I'll get the demon cast out of me. I once, this is the truth, had a lady who's a habitual smoker. She said she was born again and she... And I said, she goes, you know, she was shaking. She goes, you know, I got this problem with smoking, but really what it is, I've got the spirit of nicotine. And once I get a cast out, no problem. I couldn't believe it. Now, if that were true, in one sense, that'd be real nice, wouldn't it? It'd be very convenient to go to God and just say, okay, these are the problems I have in my flesh. I've got this problem and I've got that problem and that problem and all these things that are holding me back from that full life in Christ. So I'll just go and just cast all these babies out, you know. Just cast them all out and I'll be perfect. These are not called afflicting spirits. They're called works of the flesh. How do you deal with them? You crucify them. Oh, but that's too painful. That's how you deal with them. God has cast out Satan. God has delivered you. At the cross of Jesus Christ, the teeth of Satan have been yanked out. He can gum you a little bit, but that's about it. <laughs> the power that he has over you as a believer is taken away. And you need to realize that. And they're called the works of the flesh. I never read in the Bible where Jesus Christ or the apostles ever cast demons or performed exorcisms on born-again Christians. No, but what about Ananias and Sapphira? Acts chapter 5. When Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Oh, see, Satan filled his heart. Well, first of all, notice that Peter didn't cast any demon out. God killed him. Great way of exorcism. <laughs> and it doesn't say that a demon was inhabiting him. Satan filled his heart with a lie. As the Bible says, Satan will do in the last days with many people upon the earth. Oh, but what about Simon the sorcerer in the book of Acts? Where they looked at Simon the sorcerer and says, I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness in the bond of iniquity. He had a demon. Well, do you notice how it was dealt with? He was told to repent. They didn't cast any demon out. They looked at it as the work of the flesh and they told him to repent. That was their answer for it. So many people have experiences. All of you, all of, we all have experiences in life. But the minute you use experience as your authority, then you leave authority and you get into the realm of speculation and you breed much confusion. If you rely on experiences and say that every... Oh, but I felt it. I experienced it. Well, let me tell you something. A few years ago, I'll use the same argument. My dad, who was involved in the Catholic Church quite strongly, went goes frequently to these meetings. I don't know if he still does, but 
It was called the Hill of Hope of St. Joseph, where the three counties in California met together and there was a city upon a hill that they were building in the whole bit. And he would go into this meeting room and the lights would be turned off and once a month they would have these, they, they would pray, they would just kind of wait before whoever. And they would have prophecies come forth and St. Joseph and St. Jude and St. Simon would prophesy supposedly through people and they would write out these messages from heaven and saying that, oh, you're doing the right thing, oh, you're in the right place. You're really serving God and no one else is and just stick with this. And, and he said one evening, he was telling me this, we all got together and a prophecy came forth from a saint, whoever, saying, Behold the oil of St. Joseph. And all their arms were raised and they were clasped together. And he said, all of a sudden, oil ran down our arms. Oil was filled. This beautiful scented oil was filled in our hands. We, we, we were just holding hands and oil came dripping down our, down our elbows. And he said, Skip, I experienced it. I saw it. I know that it's from God. You see, if your experience is valid, then so is his. And so is the Hare Krishna. And so is anyone else who has experience, because if that's your base for authority, then you have to be open to everybody else's experience. And once you use experience as the ultimate only authority in your life, then you are leaving the authority of the scriptures and there's all sorts of confusion that you can breathe. I think that a lot of this possession of Christians is merely an obsession with demons. And I think it is a ploy of Satan to detract people and have them dwell upon the power of Satan rather than the power of God who shields you. Do you know that Jesus said, I am the door of the sheepfold? Do you know what that means? The old days, the sheepfold, as we've said before at some communion times, was a square fence with an opening in the front. There was no door at all. It was an open. There was no door to, the, to the, this little uh, enclosed area. At night, the shepherd would put all the sheep inside. And at night, often the wolves would want to come and prey upon the sheep. But the shepherd would stand watch and would lay in front of the door, of the opening. And he would literally become the door. He would lie in front of the opening. He would be the door. So that the wolf couldn't get to the sheep, but he had to come through the shepherd. Jesus said, I am the door. He is the hedge of protection. And the wicked one cannot touch you. I remember one time in South Bay, California, where the infamous Ken Bagdazar and myself were. It was one night about 11 o'clock. It was about 11, 11.30. And we were, I was counseling this uh, young, a guy, uh, Kent and myself, in this room. And all of a sudden, these people came into the, my office and they ran and they said, Skip, skip, quick, come in the back of the church. This boy is demon-possessed. So I gently walked out there. And I saw these guys hovered in the corner and this guy looking like this in the corner. And I said, he was a, a Japanese student who had a lot of strange background. And he had accepted Jesus Christ about two weeks before this evening, that one evening. And I said, this guy, has he accepted Christ? Oh, yeah, and he's really doing good in the Lord, but he's got a demon. He says he's got a demon. And I went up to him and I looked at him and he's in the corner like this. And I said, you are not demon possessed. And he goes, oh. <laughs> So I took him, we sat him down in the office, we went through the scriptures, we assured him of the grace, of the blood, of the covering of Jesus Christ, of the protection in his life, and said, don't you see that Satan's trying to get you scared and have you realize that he's more powerful than he really is? And God doesn't want you to look at the power of Satan to destroy, but the unlimited power of God to keep you, to protect you. 
And he walked away. It was great. It's sad when so many Christians get so interested in Satan and demon possession to the extent that they neglect the pursuit of Jesus Christ and being possessed by the Holy Spirit. And that's where it's all at. And often it's just a fearful doctrine. I see so many people living in fear because of this. And that's the fruit of it is fear. And anything that brings forth bad fruit, I just say, get rid of it. It is a heresy. If you hear people spreading this doctrine around, know that they're speaking unbiblical heresy. There's no truth to it at all. Just a clever ploy of the enemy. There's more power in Jesus Christ. The Bible says this concerning Satan. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Not cast out the devil. Not go get an exorcism every Tuesday. Resist. The devil has been cast out at the cross. Jesus said the prince of this world is cast out. And that's exactly what has happened. The power of Satan is real, but it's limited. There is today what is called the Satan Church. Church of Satan. They worship consciously Satan. They have black masses. They have human sacrifices in some cases. Anton LaVey, a Romanian-Russian descendant, started the church in San Francisco. Where else? They now have 10,000 members in their church. Speak about a growing church. And they consciously worship the devil. Some years back, I met an an ex-Satan priest. It wasn't Mike Warnke. And this guy was involved very close with Anton LaVey. And he had his two middle fingers cut off so that he just had these two fingers as part of this satanic sign. This is a satanic sign in the black mass. So that he would have his hand raised like this for the satanic symbol in the black mass. And God delivered him from that. He became a Christian. And I was talking to him and he said, because it was as closely, right after I become a Christian and uh, talked to him about my experiences with the occult and spells. And he goes, let me tell you something, Skip. Those spells that we as witches would cast, work. But he said there was one thing that we were taught to be very careful of. To find out if the person that we were casting the spell upon was a born-again Christian. Because if that person was a born-again Christian and we would cast the spell, the spell would reverse itself and it happened to us. I thought, all right. That's pretty cool protection. And he would go around and speak about the, the deliverance that's in Jesus Christ and the day that he really realized that he'd been taken in by the power of Satan. But if Satan is real, then there also must be a personal God who shelters us, who protects us, who loves us, who keeps us from evil. And that the power of God is greater than he who is in the world. And that's exciting to me.